On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. I listen to podcasts all the time and it came up as I recommended and it's his picture and I did not know him from Adam. He did not look like that on the day at all. I remember the first episode I still didn't cotton on to what I was listening to. And I went, oh my God, that's the guy. That's the fella. I'm Not Here to Hurt You. Episode 6, The Bank Teller. Coming soon to all the usual spots and to independent.ie. This is an Irish independent podcast. Today on the Indo-Daily, John Gilligan, The Life and Lies of Ireland's Most Notorious Crime Boss. A very, very cold individual. Not at all warm, not endearing in any way. A man of very few words, and he's just a very cold-looking individual. John Gilligan's name has long been associated with criminal notoriety. His drug-dealing gang carried out the murder of journalist Veronica Gearn, a landmark moment in the history of the state. There has been widespread condemnation of the killing of the crime reporter Veronica Guerin, who was shot in Dublin this afternoon. Media colleagues here in Britain and in France have described her death as an attack on democracy. Yesterday, Gilligan left a Spanish court a free man, despite confessing to drugs and weapons charges and being handed a fine and a suspended prison sentence. And there's a new book and documentary out about the gangland boss. The ruthless godfather who ruled gangland through violence and fear is credited with ushering in a new era of organized crime when he pioneered the modern narcotics trade as we know it today. And in the process, he inspired a new generation of criminals who have wrecked havoc on the streets ever since. I'm Fiannon Sheehan, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Paul Williams, special correspondent with the Irish Independent, to ask if what Gilligan says can be trusted. Paul, tell us, to the uninitiated, who is John Gilligan? In a single sentence, John Gilligan is one of Ireland's most notorious and hated criminals. And what's his background, and how did he arrive to achieve such a reviled status? He was one of the original brat pack of young thugs from the the, the 50s, the 60s, who grew up uh, and were getting involved in trouble, who then went on to become the first generation of major godfathers and players. The biography I wrote about him a few years ago, I said he's the gangster who changed the face of organized crime in Ireland. He certainly did that. And how Um, did he do that? Well, John Gilligan when he was a young lad, was always involved in crime, obviously, like a lot of them. And he was a contemporary of Martin Cahill, John Trainer, uh, George Mitchell, the Penguin, 
uh, all these particular characters. And he started work on B&I line with his father. Uh, and he was part of a big criminal cartel that that took over that company effectively and uh, almost dro- drove it into the ground. And he went on from that and as a result of being involved in, in theft from the ships, uh, the ferry ships uh, w- with the B&I line, he developed an interest and specialization whereby he became, he was basically responsible and ran for several years a systemic burglary gang which specialized in the wholesale robbery of factories and warehouses not now just breaking in and taking a few things he would go in and take a 40 foot truck full of televisions and there were the times when televisions were bulky affairs uh, and video records he stole millions upon millions of pounds worth of stuff uh, anything that he could steal in large numbers and sell on the street he was doing so he, he had that very unique niche market for himself by 1987 there were three police sort of Garda uh, report on the state of organised crime in Ireland. There were three main players involved. The number one player on the Garda radar at the time was a fellow called Martin Cahill, the general. And the two other people significantly who were considered within that group of the top three was one, a young fellow called Gerard Hutch, the monk who had just pulled off in 1987 the biggest cash robbery at that stage in the country. And the other was John Gilligan who ran, he was known as Factory John, the factory gang. Uh, and it was there. By then, he was a very major player on the scene. The police come after him. Uh, they finally catch up with him. They, they caught up with him several times. His modus operandi was to threaten any witnesses or people who, who were prepared to give evidence against him, literally sticking a shotgun down their throats, giving the two fingers to the courts in front of everybody. Eventually, he was brought before the Special Criminal Court in 1990, and he got uh, five years in prison <clears throat> for theft. And that's where the story of organized crime changes because he went into Portlaoise prison, which became a sort of like a, the alma mater of organized crime today. He started meeting young criminals who became his lieutenants like Brian Meehan, Peter Mitchell, these guys who were also incarcerated, Paul Ward. And they kept talking to him about the drug trade, this new trade, especially in, in, in ecstasy and cannabis, not heroin. They didn't want to go into heroin. Heroin was seen as bad luck or bad, but too much, too toxic. And he decided, I'm going to get involved in this business. And he came out of prison in 1993, and he said he'd never go back to prison again. And he was going to get involved in the drug trade with his friend John Trainer. So he literally just switched from being a... A thief. A thief to a drug dealer. That's right. He and Trainer got into the cannabis business, built up their contacts in, in Europe, and became, over the period of less than two years, the biggest uh, drug suppliers to the Irish market. And they, at the time, they turned over the equivalent in today's money of at least 100 million euro, which is still only uh, chicken feed compared to what the Kinnans and people like that are doing. But it was he who ushered in the system. So a very dangerous, violent uh, man was was quite content to, to threaten people uh, who, who came in his in his path. Uh, tell us about... Uh, Veronica Gearn and how she put John Gillian on the national radar. By about 1994-95 he was becoming a major major player there were, and he and his wife had invested in this were converting this land out in Mucklin near Enfield into a world class equestrian centre and the money was being shoveled into this place but the money there was no um, visible means of income to furnish the money for this and the guardies started talking, they were talking to me about it at the time and uh, they, they would talk to anyone who would listen this guy is on social welfare dole 
his family are all on social welfare, yet he's a multi-millionaire style of living. So Veronica went and asked a question that everybody wanted to ask, and that was, John Gilligan, where'd you get the money? Now, to just rewind a little bit, around this time when Veronica went to see him, I put him on the map around 1995, Gilligan had been written to by the revenue, because the guards were talking to everybody, saying, please help us here. Like, we got to get these guys. These guys are abusing the social welfare. Social welfare went after his daughter, and he rang up and threatened them. And on the file, and I found it afterwards, subsequently, on the file, they said, no more action against this man. This man's a dangerous criminal. I actually read that, that handwritten note on his files. And that was because, years earlier, his cohort and contemporary, Martin Cahill, blew up a state forensic scientist and then abducted and shot in the legs uh, a senior social welfare inspector. So he was following on from that and he thought he could act with complete impunity. The revenue wrote to him, please send us back a tax return. And he wrote F off Mm. on the envelope, put it back and sent it back in the post. So complete disregard for for the state and was just acting as he saw fit. When Veronica Guerin arrived out in September of 1995, she went out to ask the question that the state should have been asking. And she just said, I'd like to know where you got your money. Now, we're hearing about all these lies that he's that he's telling and propagating, which all Gilligan ever did. How do you know John Gilligan is telling lies? He's opened his mouth and spoken. He claims that he never beat her up. He beat her up savagely. As a result of that, and this at this stage when he beat her up, Veronica up, uh, and threatened to kill her, his gang was on average bringing in three to four hundred thousand pounds worth of hash a week. It was a vast operation. He was going to go to jail. And he was going to go to jail because he attacked her and based on his record. And he decided he wasn't going to go to jail. And therefore, he plotted to have Veronica murdered. He sent his gang out to do it. Now he's trying to claim, oh, the the gang, my gang did this, but they did did it in my name or or they didn't do it in my name. All nonsense. Uh, And that's why he had her murdered. And we had loads, there was loads of witnesses to testify to that. And who were the individuals involved in that murder in? Ms. Guerin was gunned down in her car as she waited at traffic lights on the Nace dual carriageway. Two men on a Dublin-registered motorbike drove alongside. The pillion passenger opened fire. In the past two years, she had been the subject of two previous gun attacks. Brian Meehan rode the motorbike. Brian Meehan, who was currently, uh, he was the only member of the gang to be convicted of Veronica's murder. Patrick Dutchy Holland, who is dead. Uh, he died in a cell, in a sleep in a cell in Pentonville Pro Prison in UK. Um, he was a lifelong professional uh, and sinister hitman for hire. Um, there were others involved, uh, like John Trainer. We reckon gave the information to the gang. He knew this was going to happen, but he didn't try and stop it. Charlie Bowden, who became a, a state witness, he was an ex-army guy. He prepared the gun. Uh, Russell Warren, who also became a supergrass against uh, Gilligan and other members of the gang, he was sent to Nace to watch Veronica and actually witnessed her being shot dead. When they arrested, uh, he was charged with the murder of Veronica. He was also charged with possession of firearms and he was also charged with drug trafficking. He was eventually brought back to face trial and he went on trial in 2000 uh, in, and this straddled Christmas and into 2001. The reason he got away with murders, he intimidated two vital witnesses. Uh, his former lover was a girl called Carol Rooney. She was a 19 year old and he was I think twice her age at the time. She witnessed the entire build-up to, to Veronica's murder, including she was with him on the day in a hotel in Amsterdam on the day that Veronica was murdered. And he coordinated everything. And she describes in great detail him pacing up and down the room, demanding to know what was going on. And one of the conversations you had with Dutchie Holland, he starts laughing. He says, I see you put a smile on her face. 
uh, I wonder what criminal she's going to be writing about in heaven. Carol Rooney, he basically told that day, you're, I'm going to kill you and I'll kill your family. Now, she was this impressionable young kid, 19 years of age, a child. He, he basically threatened her, along with Dutchie Holland in London, and put her on a plane about a month after Veronica's murder. And she went away and she never came back. The guards arrested her at one stage, talked to her and said, she was. She gave them a very long statement. I read the statement. Powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, and she just was too scared to give evidence. Now, the significance of her evidence was that it became an essential part. It was an essential piece of the jigsaw that put the whole story together. She cor would have corroborated all the evidence, other, other evidence second, that yeah. wasn't accepted by the judges because it was uncorroborated. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that, Basically, he walked. And another guy was Martin Baltus, another witness against him. He had been the supplier of the guns and drugs from Amsterdam. His daughter was kidnapped in the Christmas break in the middle of Gilligan's trial. And he came back and told them, by the way, I can't testify. Now, that's the reason why John Gilligan were listening to his voice on television at the moment. The murder of Veronica Gearn really shocked the nation and it shocked the state into action. We saw the subsequent establishment of, of the, the, the Criminal Assets Bureau on a massive uh, manhunt and investigation into that into that murder. What ultimately does John Gilligan go to, to prison for then and for how long? Well, he, he was, as a result of his trial, he, uh, he was acquitted of murder. But most significantly, the judges said that they clearly suspected very strongly that he was responsible for Veronica's murder. But the evidence, they said, wasn't there. Just in the way that the court, and that's, that's why that court is so respected uh, and fair, it's the same way they did their judgment in, in, in relation to um, uh, Jerry Hutch. Um, they found him not guilty of the firearms. He was They imported vast amounts of firearms. Again, that was because Baltus didn't give evidence. Uh, but he was caught on the third one, which was drug trafficking, and they gave him something like 27 years. As a lot of people would say that he was actually convicted. <clears throat> he was convicted of drug trafficking, but sentenced for murder. Because yes. nobody had ever got a sentence like that, an exemplary sentence. And he ended up spending about 17 years in prison, which was good. Kept him off the streets. And then he came out and he started causing trouble. And uh, the Kinhans went, said, you know, John, this is a different world that you left 17, 18 years ago. Uh, you better, he started going around putting the squeeze on younger drug dealers and saying, you, I want money, welcome home money. He was calling it this mm. back in 2013 into 14. And uh, they decided we're going to kill him. And he, he miraculously survived. But th what that did was it finally dented that incredible arrogance and sense of omnipotence that he has about himself. That was the first time that he looked humbled. And we had a famous picture, an exclusive picture, on the front of the Irish Independent around that time when he was taken out of hospital. Here was the, this cowering figure in a wheelchair, terrified for his life that they were going to kill him. And he went off to England for a couple of years. Then he came back when everybody kissed and made up. He came back around the time of, of uh, the Kinnan and Hutch uh, feud broke out. This individual... He's a criminal, he's a thug, he's a compulsive liar. And we now have uh, basically a book and a documentary being made about him with him speaking on it, giving, yeah. giving him uh, a platform. Let, let's go through some of the claims, uh, we'd have to describe them as in capital letters, that, that he's making. What's he saying about now about the murder of Veronica Hearn? I had nothing to do with Veronica Gerard's mother. Miss Scarwin, Lord Messner, she never wrote one word about me. You know, nothing. I, do, you, do you accept the assault her? Pardon? Do you accept the assault her? No, I didn't. It's accepted no, I didn't. And I didn't. And I've seen people say, people said I, I, I admitted this. Uh, I didn't know such thing. 
He's saying that the from we know so far, he's saying that it was uh, that his gang did it um, without his knowledge. Uh, it had nothing to do with him. Right, so it's his gang. He's in charge of them, but he didn't know. Not in the Which completely lacks any kind of yeah. credibility. Okay. And of course, if we had ever heard Carl Rooney's, if Carl Rooney's statements, mm-hmm. which were ever put into evidence, that yeah. would have changed all of that. Um, so that was the first one. The, the only piece of truth that I know of that he has spoken apparently in this documentary is that he says that Brian Meehan was involved in the murder. Well, dearie me. Sherlock, we all know that. Yeah. He was convicted in 1999 yeah. uh, and then he claims that Charlie Bowden was actually the gunman. Charlie Bowden had a cast iron alibi. In fact, all the claims he has made around this, he claims he didn't beat up Veronica, he didn't do this. Yeah, well, on, on, the, on the Jessbrook attack, all of that. He, he's saying he didn't beat her up. Reading Liam Collins, uh, our colleague in Sunday Indo, and Liam was on the, on the desk that time and everybody in the Sunday Independent and him included saw the wounds on her. Mm. Uh, now, the other thing, the most despicable and hideous thing that this individual ha- has said and is shocking and it is disgusting and it illustrates the caliber of the creature we're talking about. And he claims that Veronica organized to have herself shot in the leg when she was, people remember, in 1995, she was shot and she was lucky she survived because the gut bullet At her home. Nat- yeah. narrowly missed her artery. The shooting happened shortly after 7 o'clock this evening. A man dressed in motorcycle clothing came to the door of Miss Gearin's home in Clockran, North County, Dublin. According to Garda sources, the man pointed a gun at Miss Gearin's head, then lowered his aim and shot her in the leg. There was another shooting incident at Veronica's house where a bullet was fired outside the door to threaten her, to warn her off. This is the very early stages. Um, He claimed that she did this herself. Nonsense. This murder that was perpetrated by his gang, he claims without his knowledge, he says of the murder weapon, which was never found, he says it will never be found. What does he mean? What's he talking about there? Well, we always wondered about that. That's a quote that's been lingering around the place for quite some time. Um, And the gun never was found. Um, The the people who got rid of the gun, they also got rid of the motorbike that was used. Um, he seems to be quite sure. There was one stage there was a belief that it was dumped on, on open ground in Old County Road in Crumlin. Uh, then they searched, the, I think, a very large section of the River Liffey where the near leg slip or, the, or uh, Lucan where, the, where the, the bike was dumped and they thought maybe the gun was there, but the gun never was found. So that remains a mystery that will never be solved. What sort of weapon was it? It was a .357 Magnum, the Dirty Harry gun. A deadly piece of kit, mm. the Clint Eastwood line, you know, mm. the most powerful handgun in the world. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, but it was dumped and never found. And that was, there was a huge effort made to get that. And there was a lot of people broke yeah. in the gang so who it, it talked about that. Could have been thrown in a river, could have just been buried in, in a hole, it could have been thrown down a, a sewer. We, yeah. we'll, just, we'll just we'll never, never know. We'll never know. And he's saying it'll never be found. So despite not knowing uh, allegedly anything about it. What's he saying about the money he made from drug dealing? Made something like 12 million from, from drug dealing. That would be about right. He claims he lost an absolute fortune over 20 years in gambling. He was making huge money. Hmm. At one stage, Charlie Bowden was, uh, member of the gang and he, he told the story and he was getting a, a chunk off the profit but he was way down the food chain and he actually described how he got a laundry basket and he filled it with cash and one of the guards said to him well what happened when you filled that with cash he said well I went out and got another one right. <laughs> so like it was like the Keynes years ago down in, in Limerick they used to hide their money stash it in a wheelie bin so 
like they were the money they were making was extraordinary at the time. Uh, and when we started, when all this started spilling out, when the Criminal Assets Bureau was set up as a result of Gilligan's actions on the murder of Veronica, like the the public were stunned at the levels, the kind of money that he was bringing in at the time. And that was the first realisation that we had a problem with organised mm. crime here, which, of course, up to that time, the guards were like the ostriches did their heads in the sand. They didn't want to, and in fact, they used to bar the term organised crime. Garda headquarters did. Mm. No such thing as organised crime in Ireland. Or, by the way, millionaire drug traffickers. In yeah. fact, he laundered most of his money through gambling, and it's a complicated sort of matrix, but also not complicated at the same time. He would basically go in and bet on all the horses in in the various races, chunks of money. He actually lost something like, over the period of two years, he gambled something like 15 million. He lost, and when you put in the tax mm. and what he actually lost, it came in less than 20% what he would have had to pay in corporation tax to the taxman. Mm. So it was a very, very successful... Um, it's an successful efficient way of, of, of going about yeah. laundering your money. Yeah. He's talking about, I'm going to hell, whether he believes in heaven and hell, you know, more, more bravado from him. What is your take on affording somebody like this a platform? First of all, as a journalist, Fiona, also as a journalist, the last thing we can do at any stage is to turn around and give out about somebody else's scoop. It's a spectacular scoop for Jason O'Toole and well done, the journalist who broke this story. And for the people in TV3 to decide to make a documentary about it. It's up to them. The journalist's job is to tell the story. I personally will look at it perhaps, maybe not, because I've had so many dealings with that guy through the years. I know so much about him. I know he's telling lies uh, and he's just, and I used this term before and I hope it doesn't upset any of our listeners, but he's just a scumbag. <laughs> he's just a predatory, low-life thug um, who has lied and bullied his way through life. Uh, and the arrogance of the man, like it upsets us because we come from the stable where Veronica was murdered and the, and the home, and it affected all, a lot of our lives. Um, in terms of what he has to say, he's just telling lies and trying to rationalize himself. My thanks to Paul Williams. I'm Fionan Sheehan, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll and Gareth Mulhall, researched by Sylvia Omorodion, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from RTE, The Irish Mirror, CBS, and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. Listener.